Hello, everyone. Welcome to the fifth episode of Weaving Myths. Weaving Myths is a podcast focused on tabletop role-playing games, and specifically, playing them through the play-by-post format. I'm your host, Nathan, and joining me today are Colin. Hello, everyone. And Ruben. Hello. We are all moderators or administrators on Mythweavers, a play-by-post gaming website, and we're here to help bring your game to the next level. If you're not familiar with Mythweavers, you can find it at myth-weavers.com. As always, we are joined by the impeccable text chat, which members of Mythweavers are using right now to ask questions and contribute to the discussion. Today on the agenda, we have sandbox games, gauging interest for games, and part two of our player archetype series, all of which we'll be talking about over the next hour or hour and a half or so. At the end, we'll open the floor to a live Q&A session from the text chat where anyone can ask us anything, be it about Mythweavers, gaming, or anything else they want to know. So, without any further ado, let's jump right in. The first topic on the agenda is sandbox games. So, what is a sandbox game? And I think both Colin and Ruben have extensive experience with these, so why don't we let them tell us what they are? All right, in short, a sandbox game is a game that doesn't really have a set plot or storyline, it is instead presenting a world that the players can respond to and kind of follow at their whim. When GMs usually like to kind of make plots up on the fly as the players start engaging with different parts of the world. It's kind of, there's another subset I like to think of as uh, the uh, hex crawl, where you have the GM has everything plotted out on the hex and players just kind of go around the hex map one little hex at a time. Is it over to me? Well, when I run sandbox games, it's usually in a system meant to run a sandbox. So it's more like, for those of you that are a little older, and remember, choose your own adventure books, you have a list of decisions, you know, flip to page this if you do this, flip to page that if you do that. Well, sandbox games are a lot like that, except it's more of the game master saying, here's your environment, and you going... That sounds interesting. Let's kind of investigate that. That might be an interesting plot hook to go through, as opposed to the more traditional pen and paper game setups where you've got, you know, either one specific plot hook or a limited number of plot hooks. There's no restrictions in sandbox for players just running rampant through the world. RMD did bring up a good question of is it still considered sandbox if the players are allowed to do what they want even as the story goes on in the background? Which, yeah, I think so. Just because it's a sandbox game doesn't mean that it can't have some sort of storyline going on as well. It's just in a sandbox game, you're not forced or kind of encouraged to do the storyline, and the storyline will progress regardless of what the players do. Which does, of course, mean things could go absolutely horrible if the players go, you know, that doesn't really catch our interest. The world can burn. Oh, yeah. If you don't want to start, you know, Dark Lord, the Darkening, the Necromancer, well, maybe his undead lords just take over a nation. So I've run one sandbox game in the past, and it was literally, here's a world, do whatever you feel like. And that level of freedom is not something that we typically see in a traditional role-playing or tabletop role-playing game. So I think there's a couple main distinctions that we want to make between a regular game and a sandbox game. The first one being that they're really, it's almost entirely player driven. So even if you have things happening in the background, 
the players ultimately are still who decides what actually happens in the game. And that sort of freedom makes it so that it's less the DM telling you what happens and what's going on, and more they work together to create a story as a whole. I think it also gives a lot of room for world building. So in my example, I used a world that was barely fleshed out, and the players could fill in the blanks as they needed to fit the story they were trying to build. So it it works really well for that sort of game as well. In the uh, opposite end of that, you also have the hex crawl style of sandbox where the GM has the entire world already plotted out and the players get to explore that new kind of world at their pace. All right, so another difference between regular games and sandbox games is that, uh, I think we touched on this already a little bit, but the plot is basically irrelevant. There can be things happening in the background, but there's really no set plot, and there's not go here, beat this dungeon, go here, do this, meet this person, defeat this bad guy. It can be entirely different where a sandbox game can be, um, you know, I just want to meet these people and do this. Or like one of the characters I had in my sandbox game said, I don't really care about adventuring. I want to be a character that actually builds dungeons. And I was like, okay, that that's your plot. We'll go along those lines. And just so people don't get too intimidated by the sound of this, if they want to run one, you can still have plots kind of pre-set up, but you just sort of fill them in Mad Lib style. So you have, like, you don't have particular NPCs or locations set for them, but you have the general skeletal framework of a plot that you can then plug in where the players go and start finding things that are interesting. So I think Ruben summed it up perfectly there. Absolutely, and I would just like to mention that Mick the Rogue comments that in a sandbox game there's not a plot, but there is conflict, and conflict can be any number of things. Uh, if we go by traditional storytelling standards, you can have man versus man, man versus nature, man versus self, all of those things. But those types of ideas is what makes a sandbox game so open. It's up to the player or players to determine what conflict they want to pursue. And I'll uh, kind of as an addendum, that's the really important part of it. The sandbox games, the worlds can't be too stable and they can't be too nice. Wherever the players go, there has to be some sort of problem or complication cropping up so that if they want to, they can deal with it. If they're not finding that interesting, well, maybe that gets resolved off screen or maybe it spins out. But either way, you have to kind of still not feed plot hooks so much as problems or situations. One of the nice things in systems, too, that are actually designed for sandbox games is they usually have little things to help you create various plots, be it multiple die tables to help you kind of flesh out conflict that may be happening in an area all the way to even just a table of, hey, here's ideas you can throw in. And those are worth their weight in gold. Savage Worlds is particularly good at this. A lot of their settings will have kind of a something happens table where you just draw a few cards from the action deck and then you get a general idea of a kind of a plot on the fly. And then the new D&D has the something happens table, my favorite table in the book. Another system I'll plug that does this very well is the Mythic Game Master emulator. 
and it's a system that's designed to be played without a game master. And you have a bunch of tables that say, okay, if you get, if you come across something and you have a question, so say I want to know what's in the room, it has a table that says it's got all these things in it. Or if I say, is, does the bad guy know I'm in his dungeon? You can roll on a table and it says yes or no, or it can say yes, but something else happens. And anyway, a little off topic there, but the Mythic Game Master emulator is a really good tool for sandbox games because it gives you plot without having to sit down and creatively come up with plot on the fly. Although I will point out the, one of the huge advantages of play-by-post, you have a lot more time to think about something than a GM sitting at the table. And then just to plug one more system to the list, Stars Without Number on the sci-fi end of things has tables for building entire planets, governments, how things have evolved over the years, the conflicts happening. It Well, hell, it has roll tables to even just say, oh, the players walk in this room, crap, what's in this room, and generate a list of furniture and such. So... Sandbox games, you know, as long as there's something to help flesh things out, like Ruben said, they're worth their weight in gold. Yeah, and a lot of times those tables, you can steal from other systems. They're usually very system neutral, which is why I think the Mythic game engine is another one I just really love, as mentioned. Yeah, Mythic is system and setting neutral. You can use it with literally anything, and it will work. Another thing I do when I'm running a sandbox and I get a little stuck, and this works better in tabletop too, I will just think of a movie I like and rip off their plot completely, or a book. You know, I've done Tremors, I think, eight or nine times now in different settings and systems. Yeah, when it's a real-life group, it can get a little rough on the Game Master for sandbox games. Any inspiration is valid use. So I think, without meaning to, we actually covered the rest of the differences between regular games and sandbox games portion. Like I've been saying, it's almost like we planned things. <laughs> so now let's let's talk about some advantages of a sandbox game. Like what makes it, what's it good for, what is it really good at, and what's it really uh, bad at, which we'll get to a little bit later when we talk about the disadvantages, but I kind of want to talk about those. So one of the things I like is if you want to, you can get started almost immediately so long as your players are buying into the idea that you're going to help create the setting all together kind of as you interact with it. So there's pretty low prep overhead. It's not like you have to prepare an entire adventure ahead of time kind of thing. I'll agree with that. Sandbox games, you really, all you need is like a core group of information. Like this is where you are. This is what the setting is. These are things happening around you. And that's basically it. That's all you need. Yeah, and you need all the player. You need the player-facing information, or at least the player information that would be kind of important as they're making characters. So if it's a fantasy world, you probably need most of the like deities and religions kind of sketched out. But you can kind of just do a rough sketch, and maybe if somebody plays a cleric, you can tell them, all right, what are the tenets of your religion, and how does that work? I also really like that with sandbox games, you can have those types of interactions where the players get extremely invested because we'll continue your example. If you say, hey, what is your religion? What is your God's uh, God's beliefs? Then the player suddenly realizes that, oh, this is important to me. This is important to my character. And like we talked about last time, 
on episode four, player engagement is really important. And for sandbox games, it's even more important because there's not this predefined plot hook to pull them in. And that kind of creates a really nice positive feedback loop as the player puts more effort into the things they're interested in, it gives the GM an idea of what he should focus on. And so now you both start focusing on this thing and it gets built out more. And then people want to explore it more because there's more information. At least usually there's more information. Oh yeah. If they run too far away from all the contingencies you planned, you know, you're making it up as you go. And then like Ruben mentioned earlier, you start borrowing from movies and books. Which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Oh, no, not at all. As long as you're not recreating events out of genre. The Death Star Trench run runs into a few problems in a no-magic medieval setting. Not if it's a couple of ships trying to run a blockade. Uh, stop it. <laughs> I mean, the genre I steal most often from for D&D is westerns, because they work so well. I had not thought of that, but... The more I think about it, the more that sounds like an awesome idea. You don't need more awesome ideas right now. I I guess I can't really dispute that, but... Throw it in the binder (laughs) of things for the future. Fine. Were there any other advantages to cover? Oh, Oh, go ahead. Player feedback. The nice thing is uh, you know pretty quickly if they're interested in the plot hook or not, because, well, if they're not interested... Instead of running off to save the princess, they turn around and go to the neighboring country and raid a small village, which also kind of gives you an idea of what plot hooks will work on them in the future. Definitely. So where some games can get caught up in the planning stage where, hey, we need to do X, but how do we go about doing X? Instead, it's, eh, we're not really interested in doing that. Let's go do something else. And then you very quickly can move from one potential plot to another. Yeah, which is really nice. It's pretty easy to pull the eject button when you uh, kind of find something they're not interested in. Or maybe even just switch it up where they're at. If they're not interested in the arguing barmaid, well, then maybe orcs, you know, bust down the door. Or as I like to call it, send in the ninjas. Set something on fire, as we're fond of saying on this podcast. Burn it, break it. Smash it, crush it. Yeah, some kind of chaos pandemonium. Players swarm like uh, flies to honey. The other thing that works really well is try to hide something, but do a bad job of it. It's interesting. Tell me more. All right. So this is more on a uh, tabletop thing, but a lot of times I'll have some guy trying to hide something, and I'll kind of roll and like uh, let people roll their notice or whatever. And inevitably, I'm going to make sure one of them sees what's going on. It's like, oh, you see he's got a cloth-covered bag that he's really trying to kind of tuck away. And then what you do is listen to your players and listen to what they think is in there because they're inevitably going to start speculating. And then you just take the best idea they come up with. That's awesome. (laughs) All right. So now let's move on and talk about some disadvantages of sandbox games. What problems have you guys run into with sandbox games before? Players that have no prior experience with sandbox games. So you say, hey, here's the world. And they go, but what do I do? Yeah, that's been my biggest problem is the player just like, uh, uh, they just get analysis paralysis are just simply are too overwhelmed without something obvious to bite onto. Eh, it can die pretty quick as people kind of flounder about. It really is because, you know, as I love sandbox games, Ruben loves sandbox games, but it's not a wildly prevalent 
game type. I mean, it's for those that love it, it's great, but you know, if you're not really used to it and you get thrown right in, it can be overwhelming from the player side. And this is especially too true for uh, newer players. More experienced players usually have a better kind of time handling this, and it's also a little bit true with players who don't know each other as well. But if you have experienced players that you've been gaming it for a fair while, it's actually runs pretty smooth. But yeah, you got to be kind of extra handholdy for the new players. And you've also got when you give a party free reign of what they're doing, you can have half the party wants to do one thing, the other half wants to do the other, and now you're stuck trying to help kind of work through potential player disagreement. As we all know, splitting the party is extremely bad. Well, and you also can sometimes get the the one unfriendly person, I'm going to say, who just wants to burn everything down and kind of tries to pull the party with him and whatever his madness is. I've had that player before, and that's why Chaotic Neutral is banned in most of my games now. Oh, you too? Absolutely. I, after seeing that happen, I was like, okay, we're not going to do that ever again. But he does still let in the uh, Chaotic Zealot. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing. is A sandbox game is a lot more vulnerable to bad players than a game more on the usual rails. That is true. And it might not even be a purposely bad player. It just might be a player who, I don't know, just stops posting or suddenly has a baby and has to leave for six months or, you know, there's any number of if your driving player is either doing something that's destructive or suddenly stops being the driving force, things can really stall out. Nathan, any other negatives you can think of? I believe we have pretty well covered it. I can't think of anything else currently. I have one. Go ahead. Basic GM overhead. This is not something a GM can undertake lightly, and it is going to require a lot more work than a different type of game. Not only that, it's going to require a GM who can kind of think on the fly and adapt plots and ideas to what the characters are doing. It's basically a style that takes more skill. Definitely. I I would not recommend this to a first-time GM you would not want to jump in and say, hey, what do you guys want to do if this is your first time being a GM? There's too much that can happen that you unfortunately don't have the experience to handle right off the bat. Mick yeah. the Rogue, go ahead. Nope, I already lost it. Go for it, Ruben. Mick the Rogue also brings up a good point that this is not a style for planners or those who really want to tell a story. No, absolutely not, because you'll craft a beautiful plan and story, and when it's a sandbox, the players will crumple it up and burn it and laugh while they do so. And I would personally add that I don't think this is necessarily a style for those, in well, lack of better words, like to wear the Viking hat. If you're the kind of GM who really wants strong control, this is going to be a hard style for you, because you have to listen to and work with your players. Yeah, it definitely requires the right party mix. Yeah, I think overall that's the big thing. This is a setup for more experienced players, and it's also a setup that requires a lot more trust. So out of curiosity, which do you guys think would be better for a sandbox game? Run it as a solo game or run it as a party game? 
I like parties, but it needs to be a very carefully selected party because the chaos that can happen if you've got a bad mix of players is not something you can easily recover from. Well, I'm feeding you that too. I like to do it as groups, but I like to do it with very, very focused character creation. So I want my players to all get down together when we're creating characters. It's not done in the vacuum. It's probably not something I do applications for. I want the players to create their characters together so they have kind of an overall theme between all of them, and so their focus is a lot better. But yeah, I like to do it with groups rather than solo because solo is just vulnerable to, you know, somebody decides they don't want to do anything or stuff like that. Okay, and it looks like chat is pretty much in agreement. Small groups or a carefully selected party. And I'll second that. I did the so, the sandbox game I ran a while ago was several solo games together and it worked for a little while, but the trouble of not knowing what to do came up quite a bit. Well, I should probably mention I'm not a huge fan of solo games in general, so, you know, take my words with a uh Hint of uh, salt. Yes, that's the word. Salt. A hint of salt. All right. And now I believe we will move on to our second topic of the evening, which is game planning. How do we determine whether someone is actually interested in a game when you put up an interest check? And this is something that's kind of vague, and I don't think we can really give a concrete answer, but hopefully we can help give people a better feel of how to figure out whether someone is actually interested in a game or not. Well, your biggest indicators are going to be the number of posts the player makes and how in-depth they post. If you just get one post saying, oh yeah, that sounds neat, uh, might not be all that interested. But if you get three or four posts asking about the world and like, oh, what do you want for character creation, stuff like that, probably more interest. I've actually found that the more they ask about mechanics probably means the more they're actually thinking about already making a character. Definitely. And I found a good way to guarantee interest or not is to actually follow up with people. And before I go down this path, let me preface this by saying you shouldn't spam people on Mythweavers. Do not send them multiple private messages trying to find out if they're interested in a game. But usually if you send them a single message that says, Hey, are you interested? Here's the ad. Do you really want to join? People will react to private messages more definitively than in a interest check thread. For sure. The other thing I do, even before I send PMs too, is... So one thing you can do on the site is if you look at the player's profile, you can see all the past games they've played. And I will go through and see, oh, have they played anything like this before? And if they have, it's probably an indicator that there might be a little more interested. You could also do a poll to say, uh, but then again, I've found people like to click on polls a lot and then they'll never respond to the thread. And I generally like to kind of match the poll responses to the number of uh, responses they got in the thread. If I have a bunch of yeses on the poll, but only two people actually post in the thread, eh, you might just have a bunch of click-throughs. That's true. That is a danger that you always run when you have a poll attached to a thread. I've had several interest checks in the past where I've said, hey, I have three or four ideas. Which one should I run? And then I'll get 30 responses on the poll. But as in actual posts, I'll get maybe a dozen. Well, and the other thing I found, too, 
generally I've interest checked things, you know, in the thread and people, I get a lukewarm, but if I do a pretty cool advert for it and post that up, I'll get a lot of interest. Sometimes people don't even check that forum or it's hard to kind of commit to something if they can't see the full coolness of what you want to run. Absolutely. Having a good advertisement is something that we already talked about, but when you go from the pre-planning, pre-advertising stage to the actual advertising stage, a lot of people miss that, but the advertisement will get so much more interest because that's the forum that the majority of people look at when they're looking for a game. They don't really check for interest because I may be a little biased, but this, from what I've seen, the majority of ideas that pop up in game planning don't actually come to fruition. Yeah, to me it's always, well, no, I don't want to say anything bad. Just, yeah, if you're unsure or you got a little bit of interest, just go ahead and make the ad and, you know, put it up. Worst thing that happens is you don't get enough bites this time. Well, archive it, bring it back in a couple of months. I actually had that just happened to me a couple weeks ago. I posted an interest check. I got like three posts and I was like, okay, that's enough for me to make an advertisement. I made the advertisement, got like two applications and decided, you know, okay, there's just not enough interest right now. So maybe in the future. Yeah. I mean, I had one game I advertised for Shadowrun fourth edition, not enough interest, uh, archived it but brought it back for Shadowrun Anarchy, which is uh, an embarrassing number of years later, and uh, it got a lot more interest. Sometimes even just changing the system can help. It's amazing how much people look at the system when they are looking for a game. And maybe we'll talk about that at some point, how your system can affect the interest that you get. Oh, God, that's a great topic. And uh, Tiffany Corda brings up, a point, the soul-crushing disappointment of not getting your baby chosen. Uh, it's happened. We all have these systems we love, and when not a lot of people pick it, it feels bad. Don't worry. Maybe look at your advert again, but maybe just give it a couple months. Maybe start talking about the system elsewhere or the game elsewhere, and then bring it back in a couple of months. I mean, sometimes if you love something, let it go for a little bit. Timing is crucial, and that's probably another topic we should talk about in the future. Oh, God, yeah, I could go on about that. As far as timing, time of year, that sort of thing? Yeah, the ebb and flow of the weave. All right, and with that, we shall move on to our last topic before the Game of the Week and the Question and Answer segment, which is part two of our Player Archetype series. And this week, we're going to be talking about the Wallflower. And the wallflower is someone who kind of fades into the background. They don't take... This is kind of the exact opposite of what we talked about last week. They don't steal the spotlight, but instead intentionally avoid the spotlight or try to make themselves less important to the story. So there's kind of two kinds of wallflower. And the first one is the one that actually wants to be that in that situation where they don't want to be the center of attention. And the other is they don't want to be there, but they're not really brave enough to speak up about it. And I've seen both of these on both Mythweavers and in my in IRL games. So how do we kind of make the distinction between the two? How do we figure out which is which? Uh, so for me, the big distinction has been out-of-game engagement and like mechanical engagement. 
if someone doesn't speak a lot or interact a lot during the game, but is still asking questions outside of the game or still asking mechanical questions or helping other people, then you have the kind of wallflower who just doesn't want to be the person who shines. They just kind of maybe want to help other people. If you have someone who just does the bare minimum, responds when spoken to, but otherwise, you know, doesn't do much, doesn't engage out of the game, then you have the second who probably just doesn't want to be there. Or if they're there, they're not there to game, they're there just for the social interaction or something. Another distinction I've noticed is when the the player will make a post and then everyone around them kind of just ignores what they said and moves on without their input. And it's really sad to see that. And I feel really bad every time I do see it. But that's someone who doesn't want to be there but is being forced there by the rest of the players and sometimes even the GM as well. I'd point out when that happens, it's not always they don't want to be there. It could be that they're either new or they're not used to making posts that other people can interact with. I mean, I've had engaged players who just make all internal monologue posts and there's just nothing to hook another player in there. Any thoughts on how to make that distinction, Colin? I'm trying to remember what I said earlier. Okay, well, in real-life groups, I'd say the second type that doesn't necessarily... I wouldn't say so much doesn't want to be there, but maybe just really isn't engaged with the game, doesn't want to be involved with the game itself, is really just there for the people, is when you've got the person always on their cell phone. They're on their phone, texting, reading, etc., and typically the only time you see them get actually active is maybe when combat is happening. That is why I have banned all technology from my gaming table. No laptops, no cell phones, no tablets. Uh, I have the well, I have I have the cell phone box that when you walk in, you can put your phone in the cell phone box. If you do, you get a Benny or Inspiration or whatever in-game currency that gives you a little tchotchke every game. Uh, I have two exceptions. If you're like a medical professional, you can keep it. Anyway, not the point. Yeah, generally the people who are there just for the company aren't going to be paying attention to the game, but they will still kind of respond when people talk to them. Now, about the cell phone thing, one thing I will say is when I ran a Shadowrun game at an actual tabletop, I actually utilized their cell phones by texting them in character as the Mr. Johnson to throw a twist at them that turned out to be really cool. And that was a good way to like bring the whole technology vibe and still continue on with the plot. I mean, that's also why I don't ban uh, laptops or tablets, is I have enough players that use digital character sheets that I'm all right with that. It just, well, you can pretty much easily tell if somebody's using technology to aid their gaming or if they're just using it to kind of ignore what's going on. Anybody who uses it to ignore what's going on, it goes in the box. But yeah, I think in brief, I mean, the two types of wallflower, one is just... I. Now, I don't want to say it's obvious, but they're just going to do the very bare minimum to kind of just keep sticking around. Whereas the one who's there but gets ignored or something is still trying to interact, you know, outside of the game or when it's not directly their turn. Well, and I wouldn't always say it's a getting ignored because it could be they're just, like Nathan said earlier, I think it was Nathan, that sometimes they just don't want to be in the spotlight. They want to play the support role, so they don't feel like they need to input as much. But 
you know, they're still paying attention. They're still talking outside of the game. Yeah, and that's kind of what, yeah, basically you judge by uh, attention. The guy who just wants to be the sport guy will still be attentive. The one who really doesn't want to be there, not going to be so much attentive. That's a good point. So how do we address these the wallflower? How do we bring them out? How do we unstick them from the wall, I guess is what I'm trying to say. All right. The one who doesn't want to be there, give them a gracious and easy way to not be there. Just realize this isn't their thing. Uh, if it's in real life, just like, hey, we're going to have a board game night or we're going to have a party or something. Give them a way out that is gracious so it's not awkward. I mean, a lot of these guys who don't want to be there, they'd love a way out. They're just a little too polite or a little too awkward not to take it. The other one, I don't know if it's as much of a problem. If they just want to be the quiet support guy, you know what? Going to be that guy. Uh, I've had some I actually enlisted as GM aides. And they actually turned out to be great because they want to talk a lot in character or interact a lot, but they still want to be involved in the game. Offloading some of the mechanical stuff to them was great. I could definitely see that. Recently, I've started having a player who isn't particularly invested in the game start keeping track of things like initiative during combat to give them something to do without forcing them to into that awkward situation of, oh, God, now I have to role play. Well, yeah, and I've had a couple of players who just have certain aspects of social anxiety, and they very much enjoy the game, but talking in character and being kind of out and loud is hard for them. So just give them another job to, uh, you know, make your job easier. Or as Kenny puts it, Minion Wrangler. So for the player that doesn't want to be a wallflower, but they're kind of being forced there by the, everybody else... I found that a really good way to address that is to use plot hooks. And this works really well on play-by-post where the characters are developed more than in a tabletop setting. So you can have goals and plot hooks and pull from those to try and bring them into the story more than how they are originally. Which is good, although you have to be careful because some of them just don't like being in the spotlight. So if you kind of thrust it on them, some of them can get flustered. That's true. You you don't you don't want to force them, but if it seems like they're not enjoying what's going on, then it might be a good idea to shift gears or have a group discussion of, hey, this is what's going on. Can we try and rectify this somehow? Yeah, well, and I find that's another kind of subtype of wallflower. The player who loves the group, and is just kind of going along with this game or setting that they don't really like, but they don't want to leave the group while you're playing it. And so they just kind of play along. And if that's the case, try and work with them to find that one little sub thing within the setting you're running they can actually engage with. All right. And there's one more note here that we started talking about earlier is player buy-in what exactly is that and how does it work well and that was that's what i was talking about sometimes so to take me as a personal example i'm not a big fan of kind of really scary horror games but i love playing with my group and so when they want to run something that's like call of cthulhu or something i still play but i like to play the kind of quiet supporty guy so i don't have to quite interact with it as much and that's kind of really what buys in the player buy-in. You may have just thrown a concept out that most of the group was cool with, 
And then you have the one person who's like, well, I guess I'll go along with the group, but I don't really care. That's player buy-in. So sometimes it's just you're running something that somebody isn't really, you know, fit for that one particular game. Gotcha. So you want to make sure that whatever you're playing or running fits everybody. It's not just, oh, these two people want to do it, so everybody's got to do it. Yeah, if you're running, you decide to run Game of Thrones after you've been running Dungeon Bashers, and there's one guy who loves Dungeon Bashers but hates politics, he's probably going to go Wallflower really quick. Gotcha. All right, any other thoughts on the Wallflower before we move on? I am tapped out. I'll say it's not bad if you're a Wallflower, but if you are, tell the GM why. If it's because you're not interested, let them know about that. If it's because you want out, most GMs are cool. If you just want to be out, just talk to them politely. And if you're looking to just be kind of like the quiet, in-the-background type, make sure they understand that too so they don't assume you're one of the first two. Yeah, it is a two-way street. It's not all on the GM to figure out what's happening with the Wallflower. Eventually, the Wallflower has to kind of meet you halfway. And Zonalar makes a really good point of... Don't feel socially obligated to play a game just because your friends are playing. It's totally fine to swap players for different campaigns. And Tiffany Corda adds, you can always just be a reader. And play by post, at least. Yeah, that is important. All right. And with that, I believe it is time to move on to the Game of the Week. This week's Game of the Week is Spare Not the Rod, being run by Art of Regicide. Spare Not the Rod is a Pathfinder game set in Galarian. As Art of Regicide puts it, the players will be glorified guards and enforcers dressed up in Hell Knight gear. Basically, the players will be the minions of a big bad evil guy. This game is very interesting in that it allows the players to be evil. We don't get to see many games like this, and this sort of take allows for some cool ideas that don't normally get explored by traditional tabletop role-playing games. Spare Not the Rod's application deadline closes on July 25th, so there's still plenty of time to get those applications in. For those of you listening to the recording, the link to that game will be in the referenced links of the section of the forum post. And I will also go ahead and put it right here in the Discord. And I'd like to add, this is the one of the few kind of evil games I think has got a really good chance. The setup is perfect so that it's not going to devolve into backbiting and all that. This is the kind of thing I really like to see. It's it's a really nice take on an evil game. All right, and with that, it is time for everybody's favorite segment of the show, the question and answer segment. So we will be taking the next 20 to 30 minutes and answering a bunch of questions, all provided by the text chat. So bring on your questions. They can be on about anything. Mythweavers, gaming, previous topics. We'll be happy to rehash anything we've already talked about. It can be about anything. It can be anything. Just ask us questions. It's awesome. Zonalar asks, what is the funniest line a player has delivered to you? Um, for me, so a little backstory. So this is my IRL game. And one of the characters is a halfling who asks a load of questions of the other players. And the other player is a half-orc barbarian with seven intelligence. So the halfling asks the half-orc, where did you work? And the half-orc very simply replies, by the door. 
and that had me in tears. I was laughing so hard. Oh man, technically, mine. Well, mine's also tabletop because we had a lot of good uh, tabletop stuff. But well, if you consider the GM the player, which is me, uh, the funniest one was I'm writing the superheroes game, and we're kind of interested in the characters. And I'm like, all right, your character became famous when you rescued a bus full of burning children. And there was a beat, and people look at me like, burning children? I'm like, oh, no, no, no. A burning bus full of children. No, bus full of burning children is now just legendary. People keep bringing it up. I can't live it down. <laughs> I can't help but laugh. That's hilarious. Yeah, it was a pretty good typo. I have one, but it's R-rated. So I just I was running a Deadlands game, and I had a player... Some kind of corrupt sheriff comes out, and the player's response was looking at me and yelling, "Blam, mother bleeper!" And then proceeded to shoot him. Oh no, wait! I got another one. I was running the um, was it Hookbaugh Massacre, the very first Pathfinder adventure line with the Kriegs, these hillbilly kind of inbred ogres, and I was going full on Deliverance, where one of the characters got grappled by this ogre. And he was going to do squeal like a piggy. And the other character, the party sorcerer, says, I cast Rave Enfeeblement on the monk. All right, more questions. Zonalar also asks, what is the most unusual slash weird quest you have DM'd or played on? Oh, man. Hmm. Okay, back in college, one of our friends was the son of one of the TSR editors, and he was running an adventure his mom gave him that was in mixing called Fluffy Goes Down the Drain, in which we had to search for the Tom of Infinite Knowledge. It was a Tomcat that had Infinite Knowledge. I just remember there were aquatiags and all sorts of weird stuff. I'm really struggling to think of something that was weird or unusual, and I just I can't think of anything off the top of my head. I, I did run one at a con last year. Uh, it was basically the Goonies, except it was a Secrets of Cats game, and so all the characters were playing the cats of the characters from the Goonies, and they had to go back to the ship in the Goonies and, like, steal a coin that was cursed. Well, now Zonal wants to know, what is the most normal quest you have ever played in, and was it a fun experience? The most normal one I've ever played in was, I mean, pick any pre-written adventure that I've run, and I would say most of them have been enjoyable. Most recently, I I ran Princes of the Apocalypse for 5th edition. That's so great. It, it is a great, it's a great adventure, but my players actually got bored with it because it was literally... Fire, earth, air, water, fire, earth, air, water, over and over and over. And they actually had me stop that campaign because they weren't having fun with it anymore. I'm going to go real old school. Back in, I'm going to say, second edition Shadowrun, may have been first, but they released a path called uh, Dream Chipper. And one of my buddies, this was the first time he ran, ran that and, oh, man, I have never had so much fun playing Shadowrun. I was playing a Decker, and it's all about these uh, Dream Chippers win uh, BTLs, first become a thing. And people get stuck with these BTL personifix chips of, let's see, Cleopatra, 
Jack the Ripper, and Genghis Khan. And you kind of have to get these chips back. It was amazing. I loved it. It was so great to see my buddy kind of first start GMing and really do a great thing. It's like, oh, I love that adventure so much. It, it's it been probably 20 years, and I still have just great fond memories. That was so great. All right, don't let Zonalar be the only one asking questions. We need more. I cannot or can confirm the existence of Grok at this time. Okay, while we wait for other people to ask questions, Zonalar asks, what is Grok and why should I ask questions about him? So Grok is the unofficial, official mascot of Weaving Myths. He was first mentioned in episode zero, and ever since then people have decided that he is awesome, and they ask me about him all the time. His full name is Grok the Dwarf Stomper, and he is a orc barbarian who is on a quest to reclaim his favorite sword. Oh, and Tiffany Corda reminds me that, yes, he is also on a quest to avenge the death of his one true love, Grokula. Who is the orc that stomps all the dwarves? Grok! <laughs> okay, <laughs> Napalm42 asks, what would you recommend as an alternative to the you are all in the tavern game start? There are... So first of all, I would recommend doing anything but that. Nope. As a start to your game. One of my personal favorites is roll initiative, and then, yeah, people roll initiative, you start with the combat round, and then you go, all right, why are you guarding this caravan that just got attacked by orcs or gnolls or goblins or what have you? Basically what Ruben said, you want to start out with action or something that immediately draws your players in. So in the game I just started running on Mythweavers, the thing that kind of set everything in motion is, hey, you got a one-way VIP ticket to go on an airship to somewhere else. So off you go. And that is both a bring the party together and send them on a quest all in one. So the problem with you starting a tavern is it's very passive and it requires players to kind of, eh, oh, this is me. Is there anything interesting? What you want to start with is either roll initiative or, oh, my God, you're the ship that's sinking. What do you do? You want to start by instigating action and immediate responses from all of your players. Like in Shadowrun, I like starting with, all right, your run went really well. You've just grabbed the data, but now the alarms have been tripped. How are you going to get out? That was a really good question, actually. And we could probably dedicate an entire topic to that at some point. Actually, uh, Just different. Oh, go ahead. No, no, that'd be great. An entire topic just based on how do you start a game? We've had several of those. I'll have to add them to the list. <laughs> yeah, start a list. I mean, I did one really great you start in a bar game, but... I said, you started a bar, brawl. What did you do personally to start this fight? So Alejandro is asking, what's the hardest encounter you faced, the one where you had the most to lose, or the odds were so against you? And how did it turn out? Well, okay, I have one, but it has a hysterical ending. So the basic plot was this cult was bringing back an ancient evil god, and they succeeded because we were busy doing other things while they were doing this. So the ancient god gets summoned 
by this guy who's the leader of the cult. And he summons the god, and as the god is emerging, the fight wasn't supposed to be with the god, but with the guy that did the summoning. So not only was this ancient god present, and we were all around level 10, but this big bad evil guy was also there. So the odds were pretty heavily stacked against us. He had his ancient god back up, and he himself was already very powerful. But the bard of our party got very creative. As part of the ritual to summon this god, he was floating up in the air in the center of a large chamber. The bard cast grease on the center of the floor underneath him. So when he landed, he slipped, fell, cracked his head open, and died immediately. Man, the only ones I can think of are as a player. I, uh... Alright, I'll do one where I was GM, because that's the only one I can think of. Uh, it's a Deadlands game. Uh, I have my posse, and they're up against a hanging judge, which in Deadlands is one of the, like, seven legendary, terribly racist characters that hung a lot of people who were innocent, and now they're undead, killing machines. Like, they can mow down entire parties. And I have him with his pack of hounds. So I've got, like, 30 hellhounds. I have a ridiculous number of extras. And I've got him. I've got his extras. We have it all set up. I throw out the initiative cards, and my guy gets a joker, which in Savage World, joker means you go first, or whenever you want, but you go first. Plus two on all actions. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm finally going to hurt one of these guys. And when we play Dead uh, Savage Worlds, we also use their adventure cards, which let you do things. One of our players throws down Villainous Monologue, which means my character, my bad guy, now has to spend his first round monologuing, which I'm like, ah, okay, he was a former KK guy. He goes on about the superiority of blotty, 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 which I'm kind of secretly pissed because I'm like, no. I was going to kill people. Nope. Has to mouth off. My One of my other characters, he's a Hexlinger, which uh, are characters that have basically a magic focus item. His was his gun. He could shoot special bullets that he'd carved. Pretty much says uh, the character's also half Spanish, half Indian. Goes up, says, all right, I unload six rounds. I fan the hammer. The guy explodes on damage amazingly. Just one shots my villain who would have killed half the party. And just destroyed him. It was so anticlimactic for me. It, the player even looks at me and goes, oh, God, I'm sorry. You wanted him to do something, right? I'm like, yeah. Well, that's immediately followed by the mad scientist throwing a couple of grenades to take out half the other, uh, you know, hellhounds. And then, like, the martial artist and the nun taking out the rest of them. It was so anticlimactic. I, like, built it up and built it up and built it up. And, oh, man. It was so great. I love to see my players succeed like that, but, oh, I was going to kill them all and then just snatched from me. So Zonalar asks, how many books have you set aflame in your role-playing careers? I have never set a book on fire, but I have had several books get water damaged, which I guess is kind of the same thing. Uh, I had cat damage once. Ooh. Yeah, I don't have those books anymore. I, I did burn one book. That is a long story that professional reasons I will not go into. So I still have the books that are water damaged, but the only reason I still have them is because they are the original Iron Kingdoms books that were built using D&D 3.5, and those books are extremely hard to find nowadays. So I kept them, even though they're still water damaged. 
Uh, I do have a big stack of 3.5 books that I saved from a fire. Does that count? All right. I think we have time for maybe one or two more questions before we wrap up for the evening. You know, Nate, I have one for you. Sure. What's a game you had that died that you really wish wouldn't have died? There are several, but probably the one that sticks out the most is I had a Shadowrun 4th Edition game that I used the Shadowrun rules to create a spacefaring sci-fi game, and that game unfortunately died out, but I really wish it hadn't because it was it was really cool. The the Shadowrun rules surprisingly with very few modifications work really well for spacefaring games. Except for magic. Shadowrun magic is really weird and doesn't and does but doesn't work in space. So I had to kind of fiddle with that and come up with something, but I uh, mean I had a I've had a lot, but I was also writing a Shadowrun game, strangely. Characters were all it was basically Big Brother meets Shadowrun where it was this game where all of the characters were former corporate employees that had been fired or whatever and thrown in this house, reality school style, where they all had to do runs, but they were all broadca- uh, broadcast. And so they kind of had to, like, finish the run before the cops caught on to the broadcast. And, like, the producers would keep throwing, like, kinks their way. It was such an amazing concept, and it just died. And I'm I'm so sad about that. You know, I think you're just trying to make me feel bad because I remember that game, and I think I remember putting in an application for it, and I think that was one of that was around the time I was moving from Georgia to Virginia. Oh shit! And I loved your character, and then you just didn't respond. I know, I know. That was such a terrible time for me. I felt so bad about that for the longest time. I, I actually may be bringing it back for Shadowrun Anarchy. All right, I think we have time for one more question. Yeah, anything about sandbox games? Oh, this is a good one. Tiffany Corda asks, is railroading always a bad thing? That is a great question. So it's a yes and no from me. It's bad in some instances, but it's really good in other instances. So it's bad because you kind of take the power of choice and interaction away from your players by doing that, but at the same time, if they're stuck in a scene and you need to move the story along, then you absolutely should railroad your players in the form of skipping ahead or moving time along or throwing a twist at them. So I'd also like to add, normally I hate railroading. Sometimes I personally think a limited amount of railroading in play-by-post is useful. In a play-by-post game, you have to assume certain logical reactions and actions from your players just to move things forward and make sure you don't get bogged down in that entire kind of thing of like, oh, yes, I do the thing we should do. That is another topic that we could probably spend an entire segment on. And, you know, I'd like to because there are a couple things that are different between tabletop and play-by-post that just really are kind of hard to understand. Alright, and before we wrap up, we have one more very quick question. Zonalar asks, what is your most favorite useless item? Magical item, specifically. Well, you know what I like? I like Nuzzler's Wondrous Pigments, or the magical paints from D&D that you can, like, paint something and it becomes an illusion or something like that. 
I just had one game that just I used them and they were super fun. I mean, they have useless, useless magic items. The one my uh, characters got the most use out, uh, use out of was the Wand of Frogs. Was the one that could conjure just normal frogs, and they used that to trip so many traps. They would just conjure thirty or forty frogs and herd them down a hallway. That was a great little item. So my favorite one that I personally have used, and I know it's not a useless item, but I think most players write it off as a useless item, is the decanter of endless water, or whatever it's called. It's it's a decanter that never runs out of water and can shoot water in a geyser. But I have used that several times to kill like fire elementals almost immediately, because... The rules for fire elementals is if they're submerged in water, they take a certain amount of damage based on the volume of water they're in. And the decanter of endless water can spew so much water that it just kills them instantly. Now, my favorite one that my players have used was, people are going to hate me, but I can't remember the name of the item. But it's an item that you pull something out of, and it's a random object. It's like a bag that you pull something out of, and it's a random object. Oh, God, I know what it is, but I can't name it. Yeah, it's the bag of tricks. That's got to be it. But my players, they used a bag of tricks, and they got a chicken. So they let this chicken loose in a dungeon, and it just ran around the entire dungeon, confusing and scaring the heck out of enemies. And... Every now and then, they'd be walking down a hallway, and I would just say, hey, there's that chicken. It runs across the hallway. And it was it was a great time. All right, and with that, we shall wrap up for the evening. So, thank you, everyone, so much for joining us today. Indeed. It's been a blast, and we appreciate all of the comments and questions from the text chat, as always. I'm Nathan, and I've been joined tonight by the magnificent Colin and Ruben. Thanks for listening, and keep on weaving those myths.